let's begin with prayer. And I'm particularly burdened to pray for the brothers and sisters in South Africa. I've been hearing from more of them, and they're suffering so much there. It, it, the violence is so terrible, and a lot of the Christians are just afraid for their lives. And plus the church is, this one brother from South Africa says the church is just, we, he said, we don't have any leaders. We don't have any godly leaders uh, that are teaching the truth. The, the top Christian leaders in South Africa are either just totally liberal and not really Christian, or they're into the Word of Faith movement or something. Rodney Howard Brown or, or Purpose Driven is all over. And so I'm very burdened for the uh, saints in South Africa, some of whom listen to this. So if you can remember to do that, just pray for God's people there in, in the nation of South Africa. Yes, the Christians in India as well, because they're under persecution. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the dear saints that you have all over the world. You always have your remnant that you've kept for yourself. And we pray for them that they would find encouragement and hope and strength and everything that they need. Lord, we pray for you to raise up leaders uh, not only around the world, but here in America, there's a dearth of uh, godly pastors who would teach and preach the Word of God and not uh, have a, some other agenda. We pray that you'd raise people up to fill the void that's there. And Lord, we pray today for our service as we come before you. May we open our hearts to the truth of your Word. May we, Father, sit under the means of grace and be encouraged and strengthened and sanctified and help us to understand even better our great salvation that you've provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ryan's here. He's, he's vertical. That's a good sign. <laughs> yes, progress. Okay, so if some of you I see went on the Internet and downloaded the my little logical analysis. So let's start with 2 Corinthians 5.17, and we're going to look at um, hypothetical syllogism or sentential logic, it's called. Okay? I don't know how many, a few people have it. Not very many. I wish I had a, I should get PowerPoint in here. Let me throw it up on the, what's that? No, I, they're on the Internet to download. <laughs> You don't get it. <laughs> These are mine. But anyhow, it's um, it's called. A, uh, I, I just wanted to show you that human language works with logic. Human beings, logic isn't something that was invented by Aristotle. That the the emergent church would like us to think that logic was either invented by Aristotle and then re- resurrected during the Enlightenment and that somehow there's some other way to think or some other way to be human or some other way to communicate. In my book on the emerging church, I have one chapter where I spend most of my time just in Genesis and show how basically what they're doing is what happened with Satan in the Garden of Eden. And so when it says, for example, let's take take the basic building block of logic, which is the law of non-contradiction. 
A is not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. That's the most fundamental, logical thing that there is. And what that means is that there are valid categories. Now, if that law, the law of non-contradiction is not true, and remember in the debate, Doug Padgett tried to say it doesn't work at subatomic levels. Well, that's bizarre. And I said, well, we used to do physical chemistry when I was at Iowa State and wrote, we had to write equations to predict where the electron was going to be in its orbit. And you can't write an equation for something that doesn't obey non-contradiction because the equation would not work. Yes. Well, it's just, it's not, we didn't discover logic and therefore come truth. Truth is based on logic. You don't have two equally good views of life, a logical one and an illogical one. It just doesn't happen. No. And, and you, and as, in fact, to deny the validity of logic is to deny human rationality. All right? So let's just take the concept of uh, non-contradiction. Let's try to apply it in the very first communication in the, in the world. When God said to man, of every tree that you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat it, you die. Now, let's say, say non-contradiction doesn't work, like uh, Paget was claiming. Well, then eating and not eating can't be differentiated. A is not non-A. So eating is not the same thing as not eating, and that's just logic, okay? And if you can't have those categories, you can't even have the law of God. And you can't, you can't survive. Humans have to use rationality to survive because we're not instinctive beasts. And people that want to deny reason are putting themselves in a category of instinctive beasts. And Second Peter 2 says that's what the false prophets are, the false teachers. They're like instinctive beasts. But we don't have the instincts. We have to be taught everything. We have to be taught what's food and what's not food. We don't just know it by grousing through the woods. I have my, my favorite illustration of that, and Keith and I have been thinking of different ways of using this illustration. But the illustration, for example, about mushrooms. I, the funny thing was I went down to Barbados and used this illustration, and they were just looking at me. Mushrooms don't grow in Barbados. <laughs> what's, what's mushrooms? So I said, okay, so much for that. <laughs> but in Minnesota, we know this. Let's just say that we're going to be emergent, and we're going to use the Holy Spirit's guiding a community of persons. That's, that's what they say. Uh, the Bible doesn't mean what it says based on normal hermeneutics and logical categories and so on and implications. The Bible is inaccessible. We don't know what it means. But our community, we get together a community, and the Holy Spirit's working in our community to lead us somewhere that we think is going to be good or true. All right, so let's just take that and apply it to mushrooms. We're going to have two options, and you can decide which one you want to choose. We're going to have a, it's going to be a community thing, all right? In one room, we're going to have an expert on mushrooms who is going to come in with demonstrations, slides, and he's going to teach you the characteristics of edible mushrooms using logic and science. But if you're um, postmodern and you don't like that approach, we're going to have another option. We're going to have another room, and a bunch of people that know nothing about mushrooms are going to get together and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide them. Okay? 
And then when we're done with our little uh, sessions, we're going to send both groups out in the woods to pick mushrooms. Um, and, and, and there's poisonous ones in the woods and there's edible ones. Which group do you want to be in? Do you want to be the group that prayed about it? And we're just going to go out in the woods and see uh, by instinct, I think this is the one that's not going to kill me? Or would you want to have the one that actually used logic and science so you actually could identify a poisonous or not poisonous mushroom? Well, it would be absurd to do anything less than to join the group that was going to use logic. All right? <laughs> yeah, I think even Doug Padgett, my debate partner, would want to go and not eat the mushroom until somebody actually had the ability to distinguish between poison and not poison, edible and not edible. Now, that's just human. And we see these categories already in the Garden of Eden with the first law that God made. And the first thing that Satan did was start a conversation. Right? Rather than God spoke, and I know what he said, and that settles the issue, that's, we have, let's have a conversation about this. Are you sure that's what God meant? How do you know what God said? And they start messing with it. So I have a whole chapter where I keep going back to the Garden of Eden and, and, and explaining that that's exactly what's going on with this postmodern theology, is that we're trying to erase the categories. So um, I might, Norm, remind me to figure out how to, how to have PowerPoint for Sunday school every once in a while because I don't think very many people downloaded this. All right, so I'm going to use some logic and, and talk about uh, two different types of arguments based on if-then. Paul uses this logical construction. He says, if any man is in Christ, then is implied. It's not in the Greek. If any man is in Christ, then he's a new creature. All right, That's just basic sentential logic. All right? Now, there are two uh, ways of um, using this sort of logical construction. Modus ponens, which is affirming the antecedent, and that layout would be if A, then B, A, therefore B. Now, here's an example that I have in this outline. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as he predicted, then his claims are true. That's modus ponens. That's just a basic logical construction. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, as he predicted. Therefore, his claims are true. That's a valid, logical, logically necessary conclusion. This, this is simply basically mathematical relationship between things. And it's based on uh, definitions. And uh, the only way that would be false is if your original statement did not correspond to reality, okay? If you, if, if it'd be like any other kind of a syllogism, if your premise is false, then it doesn't work. But in this case, I believe the premise is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead as he predicted, and he was, that would indeed validate his claims. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then he's a fraud. Because he claimed that he would be raised from the dead. In fact, even Jesus' enemies, when they, when they wanted to get him crucified, they, they argued that he predicted that if you tear this building down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And that was, that was the prediction of his resurrection. So even his enemies knew that he made the claim that he made. 
Okay, so that's the modus ponens. Now, uh, modus tollens means denying the consequent. If A, then B, not B, therefore not A. That's a valid argument. Um, now, some people have uh, looked at this and uh, look at this. If a creature is a dog, then it will have four legs. The farmer's pet named Quacky does not have four legs. Therefore, Quacky's not a dog. That's a valid argument. Now, some would say, well, I've, I've seen three-legged dogs before. Now, I, okay, so definitionally, you're assuming a normal case when you define something. If I say fish have gills, that's a valid statement. But that doesn't mean that that walleye filet on your plate that doesn't have gills isn't fish. But that walleye filet is not in a normal fish condition. <laughs> All right, it's been, it's been doctored. But when it was a walleye in the water, it did have gills. So a normal dog has four legs. Okay, so that's a valid, uh, valid conclusion. Both affirming the antecedent and denying the consequent are logically valid. This means that if the original if-then uh, statement is true, then the conclusion is necessarily followed, which is, again, I just use that sort of logic. Now let's look at logical fallacies. Denying the antecedent, and this is, I'm going to apply this to some theology because this is an error that's made all the time, denying the antecedent. If a creature is a dog, then it will have four legs. Fluffy is not a dog, therefore Fluffy does not have four legs. Now why does that not work? It could be a cow or a cat or a squirrel or a raccoon. Okay, so the reason denying uh, the antecedent is logically uh, false is that there may be more than one cause for the same result. Okay, the, the, the resulting condition may be caused by a lot of different things. So all dogs have four legs if they're a normal dog, but dogs aren't the only creatures in the world with four legs. So it's a logical fallacy. Now let me show you how this logical fallacy shows up in theology. See, it's easy to understand logic when you talk about dogs and cats, but when you get into more complex relationships, it's not so transparent, and so you have to be careful or you'll make errors. Now, here's one that I've seen. The, the teaching on blessings and cursings. And, and it goes like this. Here's the fallacy. In Deuteronomy, it says, if you break covenant with God, if you're a covenant breaker, then your crops are going to fail. Remember all those curses in Deuteronomy 28, 29? Okay, so there's all these curses. Well, I've read books where people list all of those curses, and they say, if you have any of those symptoms, therefore you're cursed, because it says this. But what they're doing is that they're denying, uh, they're making a logical fallacy. If you break covenant, then, and you're Israel, and God has a covenant with you, and, and you break covenant, then your land will be cursed. That's what it says. But that doesn't mean that every time there's crop failure, it's proof that you broke covenant. Because there's more, because that's a, that's a logical fallacy. You're a, 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 a affirming, actually that's affirming the consequent. Let's go to the next one on the next page. If a creature is a dog, it will have, then it will have four legs. Fluffy has four legs, therefore Fluffy's a dog. Affirming the consequent. So this teaching on blessing and cursing is a logical fallacy from the get-go because it's affirming the consequent. 
And so they're saying, because these things are listed as curses, if you have any of them, that's proof you're cursed. But that's a logical fallacy. There may be more than one cause for the same result. And it may not be that you're, you're in this condition because you broke covenant. There may be another reason, like Job. Job was not in his condition because he broke covenant. So, uh, do you see, do you see the fallacy? And logical fallacies are very common, but they keep us from understanding the truth. All right? Now let's apply this logical form to Paul's argument. Modus ponens. If a person is in Christ, then he's a new creature. Bill is in Christ, therefore Bill is a new creature. That's a valid implication. Right? If you're in Christ, then you will be, out of necessity, by definition, a new creature. That's what Paul is saying. And see, why do we need logic? Because if we don't have it, we can't understand the Bible. All human languages use logical categories. Otherwise, we couldn't communicate. We'd be like the Tower of Babel builders. Modus tollens. If a person is in Christ, then he's a new creature. Bill is not a new creature, therefore Bill is not in Christ. That's a valid implication. Now, what does that tell us about theology? Bill's not a new creature, therefore he's not in Christ. What does that uh, refute? The easy believism, the no lordship doctrine. Okay? That, just using logic, you refute the no lordship teaching. They say evidence for being in Christ is anything more than at one point at some time in history, you had mentally true ideas about who Jesus was. I've debated those people, so has Ryan. <laughs> and we've written about it. And this verse right here, using valid logic, shows that that's a false doctrine. If you are not a new creature, you are not in Christ. Either that or Paul's a liar. And his Bible's not true. Okay? Everybody's quiet. What does that mean? <laughs> it's complicated, is it? But okay. If, and what you're talking about there, you're saying a new creature, that if there isn't evidence in a person's life, they're not in Christ in some way. And the other fallacy on this is if you see evidence of good works in somebody, that means they're in Christ. And that's not true. No, that's a fallacy. That's another fallacy that we see. That's affirming the consequence. Because Mother Teresa was a nice person, therefore she is in Christ. We would say yeah. that's not true. Yeah, exactly. That is a logical fallacy. It's called affirming the consequence. There may be more than one reason why somebody's new. People use the term born again for a lot of things. They go join the Scientology or something and say, oh, I'm, I'm new. You know, I, I've seen the light. I had an epiphany. Yeah, moral progress is, does not mean Yeah, moral progress doesn't prove you're in Christ, but the lack of there of proves you're not. That's how you use this logic. I, I, okay, um, if you're not getting this downloaded <laughs> from the Internet, it's under the reference section and print it. And it's just a little logical study. All right. So being in Christ does indeed mean that we are new creatures. If we're not new creatures, we're not in Christ. That's what we know. Therefore, those who claim to be in Christ, whose lives have not changed at all, have false assurance. 
But beware, not every positive, life-changing experience is proof of being in Christ. Yes, Dick. Just a simple thing, and that's for the rest of the group that probably has not looked at the website. Yeah. And we'll take some time later on. I've gone through this a couple times. I've talked to you about it. We've worked this several different ways, and it's still complex. So I just want to give assurance to the people. You're doing fine. Stay with your program. (laughs) Keep going. But for those of you that are saying, my goodness, I, I I don't know what we're talking about. If you can go back, get the, uh, the notes, and for anybody who doesn't have it. a website, get a hold of it and read the thing through again and have some further discussion. This is difficult to hear it this way. This is philosophical. It's intricate. It's interwoven. It's all kinds of stuff, but it's right on. Okay? The basic lesson really holds. Yeah, and it actually, this type of logic we use every single day. See, people are logical without having taken a course in logic. Yeah, you, you use it every day. You use it when you cook. You use it when you fix a car. All right? You use it to diagnose symptoms of a car. that will, The car will not start. You use this sort of logic. But I'll bet you two bits every time you use it, you don't, you, you don't affirm the consequent, deny the... <laughs> and it's eaten. Yeah. <laughs> so the cons- if there is 12 volts and so many amps in the battery, and then the starter is in working condition... And, uh, you know, yeah, it's complex, but we use it, yes. We're all here today at this building because of logic, because all roads didn't lead to this building. If I take this road, I go to someplace else. If I take this road, I'm headed yeah. towards the building. If and I so take the right road, then, route, then I end up at Twin City Fellowship. And so we, we exist <laughs> and are here because of logic. <laughs> okay, uh, Bill. Oh, sorry, Gretchen. Bill, over here. All right, so uh, so on campus, you know, you talk to a lot of students, and there's this uh, atheist humanist club, right? Okay. And one of the arguments that they would use is they would read Leviticus, and they would say, well, uh, here you Christians refute uh, homosexuality because of these verses in Levit- Leviticus, but in the same context, in the same verses, it tells you that, uh, you know, you're, you're not supposed to uh, eat pork or something like that. In yeah. other words... So, so to them, they, they would refute the whole Bible because it's illogical. Uh, you know, you have you have two things in the same. So thing. they try to so they say, but but they don't actually know the Bible, because um, the Mormons do that. By the way, the Mormons go into the Deuteronomy and say that there's a curse on anybody that adds or subtracts to this law. Okay, and then and then they say, therefore, you can't use the one in Revelation against us. This says that there's a curse for anybody or adds or subtracts uh, in, in, from the end of the book of Revelation. So, therefore, uh, we can add by having our Book of Mormon. But they don't know the Bible, nor do the atheists, because in Deuteronomy, it specifies that God would raise up a prophet like Moses who would have the authority to add. Okay? Nobody else will. But, but Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, I think 18 and 19, I will raise, God said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you, and when he does come, listen to him. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, God identified the prophet. Peter spoke about it the first yeah, exactly. Peter spoke about it. Uh, John claims that Jesus was that prophet. God said that he was. So therefore... In the original law, that's not to be added or subtracted from, to or from, 
there's a specification that gives an exception. When that prophet comes, he can speak. And, there, and, there, and so the prophet is Jesus, who's the authoritative prophet for the new covenant. And in the new covenant, it's reaffirmed that homosexuality is a sin in Romans chapter 1. But in the new covenant, under the authority of the new prophet, they're released from the food laws. So there's no illogic in the Bible. The atheists don't understand the Bible. Okay, Gretchen. I, I just wanted to say that you're a good teacher because I, I forget if I got a B or a C in ethics in college. But, I mean, that was just Greek to me, literally. You know, and so it's okay. I'm, I'm giving myself permission to go slow in this because then I can apply it. Where you guys lose me is when you get all these fast jags back and forth, but I never can keep up with you in this class. Okay, anymore. well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad one. <laughs> all right. But here, let, let me go over it one more time. Any if-then statement, if it's true. Now, we believe the Bible's true. If you're in Christ, then you're a new creature. What are two things that we can say that are valid? That if the first part of the statement is true and the condition actually exists, the consequent will follow. If it is a dog, then if it's a normal dog, it will have four legs. That's definitionally true. And the consequent will follow. All right? But what we don't know is if all we have is the consequent, we can't know that the original condition exists or not because there may be more than one cause for that same condition. So you have a little cat named Fluffy has four legs. It must be a dog because dogs have four legs. Now, you can see that that's illogical. But when you're talking about theological categories, it's not obvious, so you have to know this. All right? Somebody seems like a new creature, therefore they must be in Christ. No, maybe they're Mother Teresa. Maybe they just turned over a new leaf. Maybe they went to a 12-step group and got rid of one of their problems, and so now they're, they're new in some regard. But, but if indeed you're in Christ, then you will be a new creature. Paul said it, and that necessarily follows from the, the preceding condition. And therefore, we can say with absolute certainty that the no lordship doctrine is heresy and error. Do you get that? All right. Yeah, Bill. Um. Oh, did you have something? Go ahead, Troy. Yeah, I think there's a lot of practical applications concerning this, and I think one of them, um, you kind of covered some of them, is People who doubt their salvation should be able to look at themselves and realize whether or not they've become a new creation, a new creature. Yeah. Because, uh, you, you know, if you understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, when you're born again, that's, you know, that should Your life will be changed. can also help us determine who is a Christian and who isn't to some degree. There should be fruit. Absolutely. But we can always make category errors. The two category errors are uh, denying the antecedent, and affirming the consequent. Okay. So the scriptures that tell us to prove all things and try the spirits are also logically based, right? Yeah. All connections between what we know to be categories and in our mind that we're able to identify in the real world are all based on logic. Every single Cheryl. 
having some doubts about her salvation. And so I explained some of what you're talking about this morning. And I talked about the fruits in her life. And I, and I said, what you need to be showing are the fruits of the, of the Spirit. And she said to me, well, do you think I show those fruits? And I kind of hesitated for a minute because I wasn't sure what to say. And then, I, and then I said, well, I don't think that it's up to me to make that judgment. That evaluation has to be between you and the Lord. I said, you have to ask him to show you what fruits are there and what fruits are missing. Okay. Let, let me talk about that, Sharon's being humbly broached the subject. There's an objective and subjective side of assurance. Ryan wrote an excellent booklet called The Anchor of Assurance that discusses this. The objective side is what Christ did. So uh, let's just look at Paul's little statement. If any man's in Christ, then he's a new creature. The objective is in Christ. How do you know you're in Christ objectively? Well, because you believe in him. You, you confess him as Lord and believe him that God raised him from the dead. So objectively knowing what Christ did on the cross and putting your trust in that is how the objective part of assurance. The subjective part is what happens actually in us. Okay? And that's the new creature part. That's a consequence of the objective. All right. Now, so what do we learn? Let me do the uh, my conclusion here. Here are the valid implications of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Being in Christ does mean we are new creatures. Yes, I think that we can't we can judge to a certain degree what we see that God's working in somebody's life, but ultimately it says and I agree with that's a good answer because it says test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Remember that? Yeah, yeah in Second Corinthians. That's what I was thinking about. Yep, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now, being in Christ means we're new creatures. If we're not new creatures, we're not in Christ. Therefore, those who claim to be in Christ, whose lives are not changed at all, have false assurance. But beware, not every positive life-changing experience is proof of being in Christ. Affirming consequent is a logical error. But here's my addendum, and you can download this and print it out. There's another way to make a statement where it works both ways, where you can flip them back and forth and not have any errors. And it's called a biconditional proposition. And a biconditional proposition is this. If you use a statement, if and only if, that makes it biconditional. If, 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 we, if Paul said this, and I think he maybe actually is implying this, by the way, because if you take his definition of in Christ in the next verse, it would be the only way you're going to be a new creature is in Christ in the way he's defining new creature. But here's, here's what a biconditional. If and only if a person is in Christ, then he's a new creature. Then you can do any of those four things and you not have any errors. Because it's, you, can, you can affirm the consequent, you can deny the antecedent, or any of those things, and you won't go into any error if you have a biconditional statement. And what a biconditional statement means is that it's absolutely definitive and no, no other thing in the universe fits the condition. Now, I gave an example in here. Um, an element is... I think I use helium, right? Yeah. An element is helium, 
if and only if it has an atomic number of two. That's a, 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 a valid biconditional statement because there's no other element with the atomic number of two. Okay? Only helium fits the category. So therefore, you can affirm the antecedent, deny the antecedent, affirm the consequent, deny the consequent, and you end up with a valid logic. I see that we're probably not going to have a lot of people signing up to take logic. <laughs> when I took it in seminary, I just loved it. I just blossomed. I thought, man, this is the best class. I don't know why I, my mind kind of likes to work that way. Okay. All right. If I do a course. Now, uh, what, what can we say that would be true theologically using a biconditional proposition? And I have one in my article or my little outline here. A being is God if and only if that being is eternal and non-contingent. Now, that's a valid statement because only God fits that condition of being eternal and dependent on nothing outside of himself for his own existence. Every created thing in the universe is contingent. Do you know what, you know what contingent means? <laughs> All right. Did you ever buy a house with a contingency clause? Okay. When you have a contingency clause in your contract, it's saying that this sale will happen if these conditions are met. Otherwise, it won't happen. So it's dependent on outside factors to come into being or existence. So to say that all created things are contingent is true. Because if God didn't exist, the creation couldn't exist. So the creation is dependent on the creator. It's contingent on something outside of itself. So a good definition of God is that he is eternal and non-contingent. And there's only one being in the universe that fits that category. Then we can use that to judge Mormonism. Because according to their doctrine, God is contingent. He was a man who became a god, so he had, to, he had some process they had to turn him into God, something outside himself. And I think one of the, the primary claims of Christianity is that if a person is reconciled to God, he is reconciled only through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And only if he's, in, he's, he's reconciled, if and only if he's reconciled, reconciled to Jesus Christ. That's true. That's the claim of exclusivity, That's exclusive. that there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we are saved. Yes. And that claim precludes all other claims and is why Christianity is found so onerous to so many people. Yes, and that's a biconditional proposition. You are saved if and only if you are in Christ. There's no other way, no other name given under heaven whereby you must be saved. And so we're making this very strong claim. The strongest claim you can make is a biconditional proposition. All right? And that's exactly, you're right, Keith, that's exactly what Christianity is. Okay, let's get back to something a little easier. I'm going to show you that actually that I think this is probably in Paul's mind biconditional, even though he didn't say if and only if. Because in the next verse, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. So I don't think Paul would accept any life-changing experience as being a new creature by his definition. The only one that he's trying to define is the one that God did in Christ. 
All right. So now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a term that's not used very often, but Paul uses it elsewhere in the book of Romans. And um, so there are two statements here. He reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. We are, and he's going to go on and talk about that, but, but in Paul's preaching of the gospel, he has a ministry of reconciliation. And in this way of describing this, we have the idea that the human beings who were created in the image of God are alienated from their own, relationally alienated from the Creator. We don't know God. We don't have a relationship with God. Reconciliation has to do with two parties, God and people, humans, that were created in God's image. And a reconciliation would mean that these people is uh, people who are alienated are brought back into relationship with God. Justification is a legal category. Reconciliation is more of a relational one, although it certainly proceeds from the legal. If you're not justified, you're not reconciled. You're still God's enemies. And one of the key doctrines of the New Testament is that sinners are enemies of God. And, and that offends people because they don't think they are. You know? If you, if you describe somebody that's not a Christian as an enemy of God, they're going to say, well, no, I think God is cool. God's okay with me. <laughs> right? Yeah, or maybe they, remember, if you're old enough, remember the Doobie Brothers? What was their song? Jesus is just okay with me. I don't. I have nothing against Jesus. I think he's a cool guy. But that's not adequate. That's not an adequate description of the situation. Okay, the situation is that we have we are so alienated and so fallen in sin that we're enemies. We're dead in sin and we're enemies to God. I remember one time several years ago when I was in the hospital for a back injury. Uh, I had a Christian station on, on the radio that somebody had brought in for me. And I had a little nurse from Iceland. And she asked me the question, am I a sinner? And I said, yes. I said, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I said, every one of us in this world are sinners. But I said, there is a way to get past the barrier of sin, and his name is Jesus. And I shared the gospel with her. Amen. God bless you, Cheryl. I'm quoting a scholar here, Garland, who says this. When Paul says all this, all these things, literally from the Greek, is from is from God, he makes clear that the new creation, 517, is exclusively God's work. So that's where we have actually end up with a biconditional proposition, okay? After we read verse 18, then we understand this is only God's work. Um, he continues in this mode by asserting that humans have done nothing to reconcile God. God has instead acted to reconcile them. 
Reconciliation, therefore, begins with God who acts unilaterally. Is that right? That's how I understand it. If it is affected through Christ, whose death removed the barrier to reconciliation, Christ's death, however, requires our response. Okay, we, we have to believe, but God did all of the work. Paul is the only author in the New Testament to use the noun reconciliation, katalage, and the verb to reconcile, katalasane. When the verb is used in the active voice, Christ or God is always the subject. When it's used in the passive voice, humans are the subject. In other words, God reconciles, man is reconciled. We're the subject. God does the work. Um, Human sinfulness created the problem, and this sinful condition had to be dealt with before there could be any reconciliation. Sin incurs God's holy wrath so that it could not be treated lightly or swept under the rug. God can never be reconciled to sin, but God does not turn away from sinners and disgust and lead them in their just deserts. Instead, while humans were still in open revolt, God acted in love, Romans 5, 8, to bring the hostility to an end and to bring about peace. Interesting. Um, I learned some theology yesterday. I thought I really knew theology, but somebody came up with something that totally stumped me yesterday by email. And I did not know this. They, this, um, actually, the person is Paula, our friend from Hutchinson, who has the Purpose Drivel website. <laughs> if you haven't gone there, it's a really cool website. It's called Purpose Drivel. <laughs> Anyhow, she, she was in a debate with her brother-in-law about theology, and her brother-in-law was, is in a Lutheran, uh, saying a Lutheran seminary. And, and she emailed me. She says, have you ever heard of objective justification? And I said, objective justification. I said, well, people are justified when they have faith in Christ. I guess that's objective, but what are they distinguishing it from? And I hadn't heard of it. All right. So then I said, well, I never heard of that. I don't think they know what they're talking about. So then I went back to, so I went back to studying my passage for, for uh, Sunday school, and I was reading a bunch of theological material, and here's a quote of a guy who talked about objective reconciliation. I said, okay, I've got to know what this is all about. So I went on Google. You know, you can learn theology on Google. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. So I googled, I googled the thing and started flipping through these pages, and I found it's a Lutheran doctrine. And it's, an, it's a totally unusual. I'd never seen anything like this. The, 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 the Lutheran doctrine, at least that I was reading about, says that all of the world is already reconciled to God, objectively. <laughs> That's what I thought, too. Uh, but all the world's already forgiven. All the world's already reconciled. In fact, one of the writers said the whole world's in the church. They just don't know it. And then, and then the subjective reconciliation or subjective um, justification only happens when people have faith. So, well, here's the problem I have with that. Well, then how can you, how can you somebody preach that the wrath of God is directed against sin? I, I don't agree with it, by the way. But no offense if you're Lutheran, but uh, I did not know that was Lutheran doctrine. I'm supposed to know theology, so I, I was kind of embarrassed that I hadn't heard of it. Um, but here's, here's, here's why I would say no to that, even though I just read it for the first time yesterday. Paul says in Romans 1, 
in the present tense, the wrath of God is directed against all sin. Right? Present tense. So if the whole world was objectively reconciled to God when Christ died for sins, well, then how could God's wrath be directed at the persons he's already reconciled to? Now, the, the, the theologians I read, their proof of the doctrine was in Romans 5 where it says, as in, Christ, in, in Adam all died, in Christ all are made alive. They take that to be literal. So they are, therefore, everybody's made alive in Christ, but, uh, and, and it also would be, it also, then things started working in my head. I'm going, oh, that's why they baptize babies. You're already reconciled. You should already be baptized. And then the babies are just waiting to see if faith comes along later to, to make it subjective and not just objective. So there's a little course in Lutheran doctrine, okay? So it's a, it's a way for universalism, that's all it is. Yeah, other than it's not, they don't really teach universalism because they, if some people never do have subjective faith, they don't, they're not actually saved. I, 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 it's an interesting way of looking at theology. And then what are, what are the implications of that? Um, I thought of a couple other implications of it, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's biblical. I, rather than taking that Romans passage to say that all, uh, all are in Christ, every human without exception, I just would say that you, you become in Christ by faith, and you're not in Christ until you actually have faith. And I don't think you're forgiven until you have faith, and I don't think you have reconciled until you have faith, and I just don't think it's a valid category. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. I totally agree. Well, so if you're a Lutheran, we love you. And not every, like any major denomination, not everybody in it is going to believe all the same things. So I, maybe a lot of Lutherans never heard of this. But I, but I never did since yesterday. I'm supposed to be the theologian around here. So I, I'm, I'm going to pose a question to you then. If it is logical, then it is good theology. Is that is that uh, affirming the antecedent? If it is logical, then it's good theology. That is a false statement. Well, logic yeah, logic is the relationship between things. Okay, um, I, I, a better way of saying it is if 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 it is drawn from Scripture in a logical way, so that you have a valid implication and application. Then you have good theology. Yeah, but you could have you could have something that's absolutely logic that doesn't even apply to theology. Yeah. Where does logic and theology meet or divide? Well, logic is neutral. It's like mathematics. It's it's a it's it's a the study of the relationship between things. Theology depends on logic because it's a human endeavor that has to do with categories. But so does car mechanics, and so does being an airplane pilot, like your analogy with the merging church, and so does cooking a meal, and so does cleaning your house. Everything has to do with being able to distinguish categories. So being, being how theology is a human endeavor that has to study categories, it depends on logic to work. Let's see. All true theology is logical. You could say that. If you base it that uh, the true theology is based on Scripture, 
Right. So you wouldn't have illogical theology when you look at Scripture as a reference point. Yeah, it's a valid implication from Scripture, absolutely. Well, Doug Pageant might look at something and say that that's logical, whereas you would look at it and say that's illogical. So. Well, he doesn't like the word logic. He avoids it. Remember in the debate, I, I said uh, everybody's uh, captive to logic, whether they believe it or not, because a door is not a non-door. Okay, and so everybody that doesn't believe in logic still walks through the door, not through the wall. And you know what his response was? Oh, radio waves go through walls. So he changes the category. But let's, okay, okay, and then he went off on some tangent, so I couldn't go back and deal with that. All right, so wait, 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 back up, hold on here, stop, time out. Radio waves obey the law of non-contradiction, because otherwise 98.5 would be the same as 101. Point three, you, you could not dial in a station if radio waves didn't obey the law of non-contradiction. One, uh, so many hertz wave is different than this other one. And they follow the same categories and you're able to distinguish between them. So you, you, gotta, you can't compare a radio wave to a human and thereby invalidate logical categories. Uh, when that debate was done, I was going, what in the world? <laughs> yes. Okay, I was just trying to follow. So was he denying the condition that's an error? Because you said all people go through doors, and he changed people to radio waves. Yeah, A is not non-A in the same relationship, you know, at the same time and in the same relationship. So is that denying? So, he, so what he, no, he just changed the categories. Oh, all right. Okay, so in other words, when I say all people walk through doors and not walls, that's my logical statement. Okay? And a door is not a wall at the same time in the same relationship, which is still true. And then he says, he's changed the category, he says the radio waves go through walls. But that doesn't prove that radio waves don't obey the law of non-contradiction because one radio wave can be differentiated from another and you can dial in your radio. Otherwise you couldn't turn the dial and it wouldn't work. And, and, and to say that, uh, now this is deep, after the debate, someone said his claim that subatomic particles don't obey non-contradiction, that comes from Deepak Chopra, the New Ager. Now, that's, that's an irrational statement. All it's really seeing is there's certain things about within the atom that we don't understand. That's all it's saying. Saying we don't know everything about reality is not to say that what we do know can't be described in logical categories. And, that, and that's the old Kant. Here, get the mic to Mr. I was just going to have you explain equivocation. A lot of errors. Okay. A lot of then, then you can talk about Kant. Oh, okay. Well, a lot of errors happen because of equivocation, and that's the idea that somebody uses a term, but they have a different meaning. For instance, the example that Bill used, where um, an atheist will say, well, how can you have the dietary laws apply or not apply but yet the what was the other example homosexual homosexuality is still an application well when we read like for instance exodus 25:40, we see that certain laws were patterned to be a foreshadowing of christ so in other words the ceremonial and the civil laws were actually designed to pass away and so what that atheist is doing is they're making a category error they're okay. lumping in the ceremonial the civil and the moral law yeah. Whereas we see the distinction. And so, so many, so many times, um, what you were just talking about, Bob, 
is that Doug Padgett, he's making a category error, and it's subtle to the audience because he's using what's called equivocation. He's using a term differently than Bob is, and he's confusing the audience. So during the debate, it, it seems as if it's confusing, but if, if you would have had time to explain, hey, he's... I, I never got a chance to. Right. Well, another thing he did... Besides equivocation. And yeah, and another thing that he did in the debate that was interesting, was remember I had that whole section for those who were there on Acts 17? Because I wanted, why was I using that? Because I, I knew that they don't believe in a literal future judgment. And they don't believe in evidence. So I wanted to use Acts 17 because Paul says, God has furnished proof to all men through a man whom he raised from the dead and through whom he will judge the world. And so therefore, we are, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. So I was establishing that there is evidence and that it is valid, and that there will be a future judgment, and that we must repent and believe on Christ. And do you know what his response was? Remember that? He goes, he's, here's what he said, literally. I like Acts 17, but I wouldn't interpret it that way. Now, what is that? It's a refusal to engage in a discussion. Right? It's just I'm not going to engage in the discussion. In other words, I don't feel obliged to give any interpretation to it, but I have the privilege of not liking yours. But that's, that's not... <laughs> okay, Cheryl, call that a cop-out. Well, they prove that they don't believe in future judgment by their lack of their fear of the Lord. Well, I'm writing a book about this, and I've got two chapters left. Pray for me that I can get it done i got two chapters left, and um, I went through all six that are already done, and I, I, I'm feeling good about how it goes. But here's the thing. Let's just take the whole thing, postmodern thinking. I think that's an oxymoron. <laughs> okay? We don't believe in logic. We don't believe in categories. It's, it's, it's basically an attack against humanity as being created in the image of God. And Francis Schaeffer said that back in his day. Yes, Dave. Now, are you suggesting logic is an absolute? Because case in point, it depends upon what your starting point is. In our, in our situation, we're looking at the preaching of the cross. Right. Salvation to us, which is logical, but to the world is foolishness. Right. Right. But see, our, for us, the starting point is the scriptures... Uh, well, let me, let me back up on this. I'm going to write it, my next chapter on this. Thirty years ago, when evangelicals debated apologetics, they debated between two views, um, presuppositional apologetics and evidentialist apologetics. And the difference was this. The evidentialist says, start with evidence. Is there evidence that Jesus Christ really lived and really was raised from the dead and that the witnesses to that and so on are valid. And then you establish that fact, and then you say, well, if Jesus was really raised from the dead, and his claims don't be true, what did Jesus claim? And Jesus claimed that the Scripture cannot be broken, so Jesus told us that the Bible is true, and therefore now we have a valid Bible to bring, to read, and learn what God said. The presuppositionalist says, no, 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 you can't go to evidence. You have to just start with the Bible. You presuppose that the Bible's true, and then after you read the Bible and see that it really works well in the real world or, or has logically consistent and coherent, therefore it's obvious that this is the truth. The Bible's the truth. Now, that was a debate in 1970, 
Okay? Well, either way, you end up with the true Bible. But the, the new postmodern throws all of that out because they throw out foundationalism. There's no foundation. So either have a foundation of the real world you live in and evidence for what God has done in that world, raising Jesus from the dead, or you begin with a Bible that God gave us, and that's your foundation for all of life. But the, the Grins and Frankie and their post-foundational uh, theology throw both of those out. They throw out the inerrant Bible, and they throw out reason and logic. So what do they have? Well, what they have is what they call coherence. They say any system that logically coheres within itself is a valid system. It doesn't have to be attached to the real world. You can have a theology floating out here. And the analogy they give is like a ship. You take a, a piece of steel and a bunch of rivets, and you put that piece of steel in the water, and it'll go to the go to the bottom of the ocean. But you rivet together all of the pieces seamlessly so it coheres, then the ship floats. Well, what's wrong with that analogy? Well, the ship is still attached to the real world. Now, I use an illustration of this, and the problem is not enough people saw this movie. There's a cool kids' movie called Monsters, Inc. <laughs> Who's seen that? Mothers, okay? My, you can tell who the old people are. I saw it because our grandson had it. Okay. That movie would actually be perfectly valid if you're coherentist because it coheres. That's the the genius of the movie is that it all fits in that world where kids screams uh, are the energy for the city and the monsters have to scare the kids so they scream more so that otherwise they run out of energy. Okay. I mean, it's, it's an absurd idea, but the movie is so well done it actually works because it coheres internally. So that could be a valid description of the world because it's coherent. What's wrong with that? Well, it's not attached to anything. It's floating out in never-never land. And that's exactly what's wrong with postmodern theology. It's, not, it's post-foundational means we don't, have, we don't have a foundation. We're not attached to the real world that God put us in. All we have is ideas in our mind that we can test for logical consistency with, within each idea. And that's all we have. Now, why, is, why do they call that a theology of hope? Because they think the Holy Spirit is in the process bringing everybody to God. Instead of the Holy Spirit inspiring the Bible so we know what God says, we have a process that the Holy Spirit is infusing. How do you know the Holy Spirit's in your process? Well, because that's the kind of world we live in and that's the kind of God we have. That's it. So if you can't understand that, you're probably blessed. <laughs> you're probably a foundationalist. <laughs> All right, so that old debate just doesn't seem, it's become archaic. They don't care whether you have evidence or have a Bible because they don't accept either one. All right, yes, then we've got to be done. Okay, the document I was study, that we were studying today, you go to TwinCityFellowship.com, sermons, and on the right, there's a whole bunch of options. One of them is reference links. And you go into reference links. Left, 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 left. Yeah, left. Left, as I'm standing this way. Reference links. And then in there, there's the document, and you just download it and print it out on your own computer. And if you've had enough logic, I promise I won't teach it next week. Okay? 
I'll use it, but I won't teach it. We'll see you upstairs in the, it's 1030.